0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Alex Ward, who is a national security reporter and anchor of the National Security Daily Newsletter at Politico. Alex, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: What got you into foreign policy? Why this sort of track for your career?
1: Oh, I wish I had like a cool answer, but it was really I didn't know what I wanted to go to college for. And I think as I was looking at places, there was a, a major came up. It was international relations. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I can go to colleges, learn about other countries. That feels like cheating, but I'm going to do that. Uh, and then, you know, through coursework, it was like, oh, national security is cool. Of course, I'm a you know, 9-11 generation, grew up with that. So national security issues just seemed pretty Interesting. And then it was the financial crisis. So I needed a job anywhere and everywhere after doing six internships. And that was the Atlantic Council. I was doing U.S. foreign policy work there. And so I just kind of naturally flowed into this. Although, of course, the internships that I did were all sort of foreign policy, national security related. So all that and then, you know, journalism happened. So I've just sort of been floating around in the space until I haven't left it yet. So how did journalism happen? So one day there was an all-staff meeting and the senior vice president of the Atlanta Council at the time, a guy named Damon Wilson, was sort of reading off who had written the most op-eds that year or the year before. It might have been the early. Well, it was one of those things. And he mentioned a senior fellow. And then he was, and then his like, face crumpled. And he was like, Alex Ward? Sort of with the question mark at the end. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'm just writing a lot. And so that seemed to indicate something. Right around that time, Vox was looking for a national security reporter to kind of be there. Pentagon, NSC person, and I happened to know some folks who knew the folks who were doing hiring, and they sort of talked to me, and then it got into like, but you've never done journalism before, and I went, yeah, but if you think of the movie Miracle, right, it's like, do you get actors and teach them to play hockey, or do you get hockey players and teach them to act, and in my case, it was like, I'm a, well, not a hockey player, but I know the world, generally enough, I know the field, just teach me how to write like a journalist, and I know a lot of the players, and so they bought that argument, which I don't know what that says about them, but no, it was very kind of them to to have me on. And I'm in the field now and I enjoy it.
2: When you're covering national security, how do you define what is within and outside of the scope of your, of your beat or of the sort of national security reporting field generally? It feels like, especially as Folks' understanding of what national security is evolves and expands over time to include pandemics, climate change, et cetera. Like it could include everything under the sun. So, how do you conceive of the beat, the field, what your lane is, and so forth?
1: Yeah, I mean, this does feel like the national security versus human security debate, right? Which, uh, you know, scholars are still fighting about for tenure, I guess. The first part's pretty easy because I'm the NSC guy and the general sort of US foreign policy guy. Politico. And so I have Laura Seligman at the Pentagon, along with Paul McLeary. Lee Hudson does uh, defense industry stuff. Andrew Desiderio does The Hill and national security. So my sort of world is defined by that and also what I can write about in a newsletter. In terms of what sort of encompasses national security, you could go as broad as it is anything that could threaten the, the livelihood and safety of Americans and the American state. That seems to me is like venturing into human security, right? Because then we're talking about drinking water. We're talking about electric grids. We're talking about a whole bunch of things. So in my case, this this is about the policymaking apparatus of dealing with the world and the safety of Americans in terms of like that DOD, NSC world. Um, It's not a great definition. I'm not trying to provide one. I'm not an academic. But in terms of what I'm looking at, it is those kinds of things. Basically, I'll put it this way whatever falls on Jake Sullivan's desk, that's what I got to care about. <laughs> um, and, and and so, yeah, that. And they have seen, this administration has seemed to have expanded the aperture to issues of tech and, uh, you know, export controls and, uh, of course, now pandemics and economic security and all that. So I have to care about that now, too. It does feel like they have moved into the bit of a uh, human security realm.
2: Okay, so then on a related note, first of all, I like that whatever hits Jake Sullivan's desk is within your purview. But like, you seem to be toggling back on a you know on a daily basis between covering Ukraine and Russia to covering things that are happening in Iran to covering the EU etc so how do you mentally and professionally like shift gears and how are you able to cover, cover all of these different regions and issues and keep them straight and and be able to tell those stories effectively in so many places and are there sort of common threads that make it easy to do so
1: well, I'm glad I'm tricking you all and thinking that I'm an expert in these things. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm very open about this. I'm about a mile wide and an inch deep on a lot of issues. And I kind of have to be because my job is to cover a newsletter. So I have to be familiar with a bunch of things. But am I super deep on all of them? No, I, I you know, I, I just can't be. I'm deep on knowing the players in the NSC. I'm deep on knowing what's going on inside the White House. I'm deep on sort of the making apparatus. But on the actual subjects themselves, I'm knowledgeable. Don't get me wrong. I can definitely talk about them smartly. But I don't have like the historical knowledge. I don't have a lot of the inside player knowledge. And like that's I think that's part of the reason why, you know, journalists are kind of notoriously American journalists. Well, I think a lot of journalists are notoriously not perfect at getting at doing foreign stories. It's because you're not there. You don't know the issue that well. We sort of parachute into them. And so at least I'm open about it, like because I'm a newsletter guy. I am really good and deep on the apparatus that the U.S. has to make decisions on X, Y, Z countries or issues on those X, Y, Z issues or countries, again knowledgeable, but I have to actually dig a little deeper. And so I, I'm really reliant on my conversations, not with like U.S. officials or anything like that, but with experts. And that's one of my favorite things I learned from my box days was you could spend half an hour with an expert who will tell you their entire life's work <laughs> and like everything you sort of need to know in the Cliff Notes version. And so you can get really up to speed. And so I really enjoy talking to experts who, again, will, will maybe make, move me from an inch to, to three inches deep on an issue, but that's better than that.
0: So you're a newsletter guy, as you said. You've done sort of longer form stuff. You've done podcasts. You're now writing a book. What do you think the format of a newsletter has done to the, either the way you think about stories or the way you think about writing or what you value in a story?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really sort of down to its essence. For those who are unfamiliar with my newsletter, National Security Daily, which you definitely subscribe for, on a bash plug, the top of it is sort of my story of the day. I've been working on something that I can get into the context. For everything else, they're items, right? And so those are like a hundred, two hundred words top. So I really have to be judicious about what's important in the story that I'm summarizing, or even in the even if it, I am breaking a bit of news, but it wasn't sort of top worthy. What is the main thing I'm trying to get across? And so, you know, I break down stories to, I I hope, and it's sort of its highest aspiration, I break down stories to their essence. What is the thing you need to take away? I think of the newsletter as like a consumer PDB. You've had your head down at your desk all day, you haven't been able to follow the news. You look at this newsletter and you go, okay, I have a general sense of the stories that I need to know being in the national security space. So what is sort of your quick fix to it? Now I understand, and I've heard the criticism, and I actually think it's fair, That newslettering is sort of anti-journalistic because we don't provide the context necessarily that you need, right? Sometimes if you just go for the the bottom line up front or the lead or the the main thing, you're removing a bit of nuance, you're removing a bit of of the main issues that could matter to that story. My sort of defense of that is newslettering is, um, well, I am linking to the story that has all of that. So if you do really care, read beyond. I am just sort of the snack bite version of it. But it is sort of fascinating to me that there is a movement, it looks like, in journalism towards newsletters, not like entirely, right, newspapers will exist and all that. But I guess I would say the customization of your news and when you're getting a newsletter, you are not really always, always getting a full bit. So I'm sort of interested in what that means in terms of the consumer down the line. I I don't have anything smart to say about it, but I am sort of thinking about, is this going to be the preferred method in which people get news or they just want the sort of tweet version and if so, what does that actually mean in terms of decision making and, and consumer knowledge of, of information? But I'm still thinking through that.
0: Who do you think is the audience for that work? Do you think it's someone who like already knows and is just like, ah, you mentioned Burkina Faso today or Burkina Faso, I can never pronounce it right. I already know that they're having troubles and that there was an election or blah, 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 blah. Or do you think of yourself as like, I'm the gateway for someone to go into Politico's deeper work?
1: Well, first, I know you definitely read today's edition because you mentioned the Burkina Faso item. So, thank you for doing that. Uh, <laughs> it's different, right? Because the political audience is, I think, generally speaking, a, a pretty informed professional class audience. And so, and on top of that, we're self selecting to national security. So, the people who have subscribed to this are probably pretty familiar with the general issues, things going on. That said, I don't imagine, and I've talked to people who are subscribers, and they are in DOD or in the NSC or in the private sector and all these places, and they don't know most of the stories that are in the newsletter. Reason being, they can't possibly. Probably the only people who do are like the Jake Sullivans and the Bill Burnses of the world, and I'm not sure they're they're reading it every day, you know? So this is to provide as wide a breadth of information about the key issues that, I, as I see them understanding that I don't have, the, I'm not the be all end all, but as I see them, the key issues facing U.S. foreign policy or global security, or at least even if they're, and I do have a, a tendency and sort of an affinity for, there's stuff happening around the world too. Is the violence of Burkina Faso really impacting U.S. foreign policy at this moment? Probably not if we, you know, if we have to be very honest about it, but it's still important. It's still people. It's still lives. It's still a, a, a nation. We should know. And if there's anything that or if there's anyone reading the newsletter who might have some way to make the situation better, then I'm glad I put the item in. I don't know if I do. I hope I do. But anyway, so those kinds of things are worth putting in there. So, yeah, I think, if, you know, it's an informed audience. I expect them to know a lot of things. That's why I don't go into a lot of explanatory things. I have to go against my box judgments. <laughs> right. I just kind of go, you probably know this already. So let me just tell you the the, the nugget. But I still try to balance it with I do want to be a self-contained each item is its own self-contained item. So even if you don't have the whole backstory, a la Vox, you'll at least, when you read the item, go, "I have that information. I can go about my day and speak about it intelligently."
2: How is covering national security different in the Biden administration than it was in the Trump administration?
1: Very different. So, boy,
2: <laughs> take us behind so, the scenes. I mean, look, give it, us all the dirt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is you'll be look i'll put it i think it is easier to cover a republican administration than a democratic administration just generally speaking for the main reason that right leaning folks tend you know say the media is liberal and, and there's a bias that's a whole self- separate philosophical argument but because of that if they see you as a fair journalist they'll work with you because you they you're not one of the bad ones democrats because also of this argument Uh, or left-leaning folks think that you work for them in some way, or you're their pal. And so when you write a story that is somewhat critical, they're like, what? How dare you? Like, aren't you on the team? And I have to like somehow keep dispelling this for any left-leaning person. Like, I'm not on your team. Sorry, I'm just not on your team. So there's more thin skinnedness I would say, among the left in terms of dealing with the press. Now, that said, you know, Trump way more thin-skinned, I would argue, than Biden's as, as a person. But what was interesting is, like, the Trump folks, you know, they would yell at you, berate you, threaten, all kinds of things. But then in the end, they'd still work with you. Biden's folks just, like, shut you out or don't talk to you. And they're very quiet and they're very strategic in the way that they— like, a lot of the, the news that we're all getting is sort of leaks. I'm not—strategic uh, leaks that they are putting out. I'm not saying that reporters aren't getting leaks, aren't doing good work, aren't doing the runaround, but this is a very tight-knit— closed administration. So a lot of good stuff isn't getting out sort of through the normal reporter finds out good things channels. So it's a whole different world. And, and look, the, the Trump years were also just kind of like for a policy guy like myself and, and an apparatus guy, like there was no apparatus. There was no policymaking process. It was like Trump tweeted and that was the thing. And so what was interesting is, all right, Trump makes this decision out of God knows for what reason, And you have to sort of, how are they retrofitting that? Whereas here, you can at least sort of follow, okay, well, they're having meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings. meetings, So why aren't they putting it out? There must be some sort of reason why they aren't putting it out. Or why are they having an interminable meetings? It's definitely less exciting. (laughs) But there's no question that like, we aren't living in exciting times either way.
2: Do you feel like you've seen a crackdown on leaks in in practice? I mean, I feel like that That is, like, the prevailing narrative is, like, there's been, you know, there is a crackdown on leaks. And and I would say, obviously, aside from, like, the strategic leaks that are blessed and whatever, like, do you see that? Do you feel those impacts?
1: The lifeblood of the reporter is to get these leaks and to to scoop stuff. My team, they're a team of friends, right? They're all loyal to each other. They all know each other from the Obama years or from, like, group counseling during the Trump years. So they just, like... They don't want to rat on each other. They don't want to hurt their friends. The Trump years, of course, they all didn't really like each other. So they had no problems kind of uh, fighting in, you know, knife fighting in the press. So that, that I sort of feel, right, is in and on top of that, like I could, you know, I've quoted Jake Sullivan in stories during the Trump years. I quote a lot of the people that are in uh, the Biden administration now. I have their numbers. They have mine. But, you know, there's a firewall now. So it's hard to sort of get in, get involved. Now, I'm not saying. I'm not confirming nor denying that I'm like talking to these people, but I am saying that it, the, the sort of f- flow of information that existed when they were out of government for obvious reasons is no longer as, as free flowing. But I'll tell you, you know, m- among my reporter, Corey, we have all drank stuff and talked about this. Like, we, I don't think any of us expected this level of shutdown from inside. Uh, again, stuff is still leaking out. It is not a complete damning, but it has surprised a lot of reporters of how it just tight knit and closed off the, uh, this administration is, which the, depending on who I talk to, like good for America, fine, arguably, I would argue that it's not always the best, but either way, but definitely bad for sort of our profession. So we've gotten, I think a lot more creative, honestly, at least I feel like I have in bank shotting and finding ways in, um, instead of just kind of going to the normals.
0: So why don't you think it's good that they're tight lipped other than of course, like you want to break a bunch of news. You want everyone to read the newsletter.
1: You know, the lifeblood of democracy, among other things, is information and like things getting out. And are you saying democracy dies in darkness? I'm not saying that, although it's a fine tagline at a fine paper. (laughs) But I am saying that less information is not always good. And I do think that this administration, on top of that, leaves a lot of points on the board by not sharing. And or when you go to them and you're like, it's very clear that something went wrong or something has gone right, they still don't necessarily want to give a backstory. They still don't want to provide their thinking or how they got there. They're just kind of like, well, it was a whole of government approach and we worked with allies and partners in order to uphold the liberal international order to make sure that democracies can deliver against autocracies. It's like, well, what, what are we talking Like, well, This isn't even a discussion and, I, and I'm, I'm willing to say then in reporting for for my book here on Biden's first year foreign policy, you know, I was granted some deep background interviews, which is very normal occurrence. And like, it was just talking points still, like in a deep background setting. And so part of me just kind of like, all right, it's just this is where you guys are at. So I find it, I find that they're doing themselves a disservice and the public a disservice. Again, I'm not saying, you know, share all the secrets. But I am saying that there are a lot of unsensitive things or rather like slightly sensitive things that still would inform the public and put some points on the board. That'd be interesting. So you guys should go ahead and do that, you know, not just for my profession, but like for the national conversation.
0: So you mentioned that you're writing a book on Biden's foreign policy. Everyone should pre-order it when that becomes available. Do you have a general theory other than the talking point? You know, we're working with our partners. It's a whole government approach. It's foreign policy for the middle class, yada, yada, yada. Do you have like an idea of what you think he
1: thinks about it. I do. I'm not sure I should put it forward quite yet. Um, we're nowhere near. I still have about ten thousand more words to write, so we're nowhere near the the selling page. But I, I guess what I uh, stage. I guess what I should, what I can say is that I think the the whole democracy versus autocracy thing is genuinely felt by the president. And like it, the line comes from him this was not a Jake Grinton line or a I should say Jake Sullivan line or a, a Secretary Blinken line. This is how Biden feels about the situation. And I do feel that this is an administration that views itself initially as trying to right the wrongs of what they perceive as the Trump years. And then in sort of a, a I guess I can put it this way, like if US foreign policy were software, like update it for the 21st century. So to include trade, economics, et cetera, basically give it a, modern facelift and reboot, that's at the top level. But at the end of the day, it's still like, they are dominated by the inbox. Now could they not be, right? I mean, Russia, Ukraine was not something that was on their radar. In fact, I was sort of thinking about this the other day. So September, 2021, right? So the month before like the US gets that first intel that this is really starting to happen and the buildup is really sort of kicking off. Like, do you remember talking about Ukraine and Russia at all? No, I mean, I, I, you know, I broke the AUKUS story. We were talking about AUKUS in France for a while, Biden went to UNGA. I just looked at, relooked at his 2021 speech. Russia and Ukraine were not featured at all in that speech, like not the words themselves. So like even the month before, it just wasn't a thing. The fact that they moved this quickly and like reoriented foreign policy need, need, uh, by the way, uh, for a good reason, needing to do that, I think has been quite remarkable and different. And so I think all the operating theories have sort of had to shift because of of all of this. So I don't have an overlying theory yet, but I do feel uh, well, I do, but I don't want to share it yet. Generally speaking, I do think that this is like the autocracy democracy thing does fit in quite nicely, doesn't it, with this Russia Ukraine thing? Um, so it is, I still feel, of course, that the administration would have been uh, as robust and forward leaning on this issue without that sort of framing. But I think the framing unintentionally gives it a bit of an intellectual heft and even undercurrent. And, like, this is a fight not only between Russia and Ukraine, but for a democratic country, small d, and uh, and an autocratic one.
2: So we were talking about this a little bit earlier with regards to, like, you know, who's the audience, etc. And Grant and I have had this discussion a little bit on other episodes of this podcast that one of the things that's tricky about foreign policy is that, like, most Americans don't care very much about foreign policy and national security. and. Um, you know, especially in the context of elections, people are very focused on employment and the economy and, and a whole host of other, you know, sort of domestically focused issues, which I always find quite funny in the context of the federal government and, and in particular in the context of like presidential elections, because national security and foreign policy is where like the executive branch has the most unilateral power. So like if you're selecting a president based on any area of policy, it probably should be something where they have. A lot of leeway to do things without congressional Congress playing a part, etc. And so but I guess like from a from a journalistic perspective, what is your perception of whether Americans care about these issues, whether they should be caring more and how to and how to get more Americans to be interested in in foreign policy issues or in things that are happening abroad?
1: I'm going to disappoint you with my answer. I just don't think there is a way to get more people interested in foreign policy. The reason being is everyone's got lives in the here and now domestically. And like, who are we to sort of push them off? I remember an old boss of mine, who's sort of an expert on, you know, the presidency and foreign policy, he said, you know, foreign policy can't make a presidency, but it can break one. And this is sort of how I think about the, sort of how even just not only the, the, the White House, but also like the public deals with foreign policy. If things are going well, literally no one cares. And arguably, you could make this extensive domestic politics, too. But like, just no one cares if we're cr- if we're just killing it with human rights issues in certain places or we're giving them enough aid so they can reconstitute themselves. It's just not going to make the front pages, which brings me to it's also our fault because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. We love writing about in the media world foreign policy disasters or things going wrong. So that's what people are attuned to. And that's what they're interested in. And so they will care about a foreign policy issue when it either seems like it's going to affect them immediately, like, say, terrorism shortly after 9-11, when it was, like, the issue. Or, of course, a big thing like the Afghanistan withdrawal or, of course, this war in Russia-Ukraine. But other than that, like, everything else is just not going to be on the radar. But it does seem, we don't have any hard evidence of this, of course, but it does seem like part of Biden's poll numbers uh, were dragged down by the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, and the evacuation, like the way it went. Um, it's hard to know, but it but it does seem there seems to be a bit of a correlate. Like they happened around the same time and stayed low for a while. didn't really come back up until after a bit had moved on. Of course, there were other things happening, correlation causation. i'm 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 hearing my stats, teachers in my head. But you know, I, I think that that's when the public really tunes in when things are bad. <laughs> and then it's about how does the president respond, good or not? But to care about foreign policy sort of generally, like I I gotta be honest, uh, I'm a little pessimistic about, you know, if there are ways that could increase. Although if I have any optimism, it would be that, you know, the, like the rise of K-pop and K-culture and, you know, the fact that there are foreign films that are getting more recognition and and foreign bands and, and stuff like that. Like maybe that's just getting people interested in things around the world a bit more. But I think at the end of the day, you're still gonna care about, you know, what what Biden would call kitchen table issues. It's just still gonna be, domestic economy. But but I'm with you in the general point. Like I've talked about this with my fellow National Security reporters like if you're if you care about a president and an election, like care about the one thing that president can probably do without any say so and that is foreign policy. Like, you know, I always go go crazy during presidential elections cuz they're talking about like healthcare reform and immigration reform and all these things and like they matter, don't get me wrong, very important issues. But like a president can't wave a wand and and say now the border is fixed or healthcare is fixed or whatever. Like, but they can wave a wand and go bomb that country. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you there mentally and like logically.
2: One thing that I also wonder, but I don't feel like I have a good sense of like the magnitude or evidence empirically is like whether certain platforms like TikTok or like other social media platforms actually do end up attracting more attention or sort of galvanizing American feelings about these issues. Like, Like, I guess what I mean is like, especially as protests, you know, have broken out in Iran, et cetera. Like if you're seeing really firsthand content of these protests or of the war in Ukraine or, or whatever, like I wonder if there's sort of a, an immediacy there that you didn't get previously from watching CNN and whether that's going to ultimately tip the scales in you know in certain conflicts or in certain regions or settings or so forth. But I, it, I think it's a little hard to tell.
1: For sure. But I'm very much a proponent of like art is probably the way to get to people better than like through elite argument. Like, I would not be surprised if the the sort of rising generation of Americans and even around the world really care about our U.S.-South Korea alliance, <laughs> right? Um, I would not be surprised if that were the case. I would not be surprised if there's a lot of love for Ukraine. Not only, of course, I think the war first and foremost, but like they won Eurovision. Ruslana was there quite a bit, doing pretty well. There's a lot of Italy love now because of uh, Maniskin. Anyway, all this to say is that I, I find that when, when people can digest things or like experience them with sort of, uh, more viscerally, perhaps, they start to care about it more. And like, you know, love of BTS might make you care about what's going on in South Korea, and therefore you may care about that the fact that the US has an alliance with South Korea, et cetera, et cetera. So if I have any optimism, it is only through this, like through art.
0: Politico is part of the larger media ecosystem. Which I think, you know, this is something that Zoe and I kind of talk about a lot is so dominated by the platforms, right? Facebook, Twitter, now TikTok. Those things are important to disseminating your your work. And you have a, a good following on Twitter. Do you think that changes the way you write or how you think about what's important? The feedback, or even just like what gets trending, what gets retweeted by who?
1: Uh, Well, I don't know. It's nice of you to say I have a Twitter following. It seems small by comparison amongst my colleagues, which is fine. I spent a lot more time on Twitter at Vox because there was a, you know, Vox cared more about not only virality, but for for a good reason, the whole point of that outlet really was if something's in the news and you live a busy life, we will explain it for you. And so virality happened a lot online. So I would explain things on Twitter and then I would go and write the 3000 word explainer. One, I just I'm too busy with the newsletter now that it's hard for me to tweet <laughs> unless I have something to add to the debate or unless I have a funny joke to tell, which I which, well, rather, I think is funny, but no one else does. Then I'll put it on Twitter. But no, I mean, I, I don't actually see like who clicks on my articles. It's actually there's a pretty strong firewall at Politico about that. So you're not chasing clicks. If you're fighting stories like if you're writing stories about things in the news, you're, you're going to get enough people to read it. But there was a sense of Again, there was an attention to what people were clicking on and cared about ad box for for, sort of for for that reason. It was like, are we are we responding to a demand effectively from if it's something in the conversation, we have to explain it. We don't really have that at Politico. It's just it is news. Therefore, write the news. I'm not looking for retweets in my articles. My leads just aren't hot enough. Uh, (laughs) Like I could lean into polemic and I know some reporters do. It's just it's not my style.
2: What's your favorite topic or area to cover?
1: I've, I've always been a nuke guy. Love love nukes. <laughs> I, know, I, I love their maintenance. I, I love thinking about them, all the sort of the high-minded deterrent stuff. Um, I mean, I wrote, I think it was 6,000-word explainer for Vox just about, like, how nukes could kill you. <laughs> it's, it's just, like, where my mind's at. I'm interested in in sort of, you know, like, say a bomb goes off, what actually happens. I can't tell you how long I looked at the, how what matter, like how much wind matters in the effect that a bomb could have. So I care about that a lot. When I was reading books like from Fred Kaplan, who I, you know, as a reporter, I, I like a lot. He writes books uh, kind of about like the history of national security ideas, like, um, you know, Wizards of Armageddon, which is about sort of nuclear use, the insurgents, which is about like how counterinsurgency became sort of a, a big thing during Afghanistan and Iraq. And I'm interested in that. So this isn't a perfectly specific answer, but I really enjoy figuring out like, how did an idea or a policy come to be? What were the arguments? Who was pushing for what? Was there someone who was just like driving hard? Like, my my, the AUKUS scoop, not to mention it again, but like, it came from the sense first of like, what is Kurt Campbell up to? You know, (laughs) like, (laughs) what is he doing? And then uh, talking about Asia and stuff like that, then it's sort of like, oh, then I piece this thing together. But yeah, it was just kind of like, I'm interested in that. Like, who's talking to who? You know, which think tanks are talking to people in in the administration? Are they taking any of those ideas? What's being said in the situation? Like, when they're having debates that Jake is leading, like, who's arguing what? Why are they arguing that? And then why were, you know, when it's three options to the president, like, why, well, how did those three options get there? I'm interested in the three options. I'll report on the three options, but I'm kind of intellectually more interested in the history of how those three options got to the president. Every day when I'm reporting, that's like, where I like to be—that and nukes.
2: Well, speaking of you know stories that you have broken recently, uh, you broke the news that Pelosi would be traveling to Armenia. Is there anything you can tell us there about the the backstory and and getting that scoop without revealing you know your source? No, I mean, I mean it was just
1: you know you get a tip. Hey, I hear Pelosi's going to Armenia. And it's just like, oh, really? Like, interesting. And I, I love, I love that moment of like you get the tip and you kind of feel it's true. Some I get tons of tips and you like, oh, this isn't there's no way this is accurate. I'll I'll try, I'll chase them all down. But that one I was like, ooh, this feels real. <laughs> um, this it's a thing that she's clearly doesn't care about where she's flying these days, middle of a war, California politician, like it just all sort of makes sense. So yeah, I just called around and started to. And no one was confirming it. And and like, but my, you know, my tipster was like, I'm telling you, I know this is true. Like, you got to get it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to keep going. And I want to give my colleague Laura Sullivan credit because she was like, you should call around here. And I was like, I'm not sure. She's like, yeah, just give it a try. And like, second call, like confirmed. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, she deserves credit really for this as well. And then it was, you know, call Pelosi's office, deal with them. They weren't, particularly happy. Uh, (laughs) But you know, we did the story anyway.
0: I want to do a quick lightning round. I know you're not a polemicist, but I'd love to get more of your analysis on some of the stuff you've been covering. So will the midterms have a major impact on the current direction of Biden's foreign policy?
1: I think on the whole, no. Say the the conventional wisdom holds true. It is a Democratic Senate still, you know, 50-50 or 51-49, and then it's a Republican House. So you will see Republicans in the House probably go after Biden on Afghanistan. You'll see a lot of kind of hearings on that. You'll probably see more more opposition to American support for Ukraine vocalized, mostly from the right, and that will lead to some on the left probably pushing for that. But I don't expect a major change here, except other than there are more voices sort of pushing against what Biden can do. But as we were talking about before, like the president can kind of do what the president is going to do. So... The only really constraint will be if somehow pushing on X, Y, Z foreign policy issue detracts from a domestic issue. But at the moment, I don't really see any linkages.
0: It's become in vogue to be China hawkish, both on the left and the right. Do you think the threat posed by China is overrated or underrated in the beltway?
1: It depends what you're talking about, right? Like, is it a military threat right now? I don't like to, to the homeland at the moment? No. Is it a threat if, you know, Taiwan is invaded? Yeah. Yes, it depends on the situation. And then like in terms of technology, well, yeah, they've been bad for a long time. Should probably be better with our IP protection and cyber stuff. Are they a threat to the liberal international order? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. But like I feel like a lot of things have to change for that to be true. So I don't know. I feel like it makes sense that there's like major focus on China in terms of U.S. foreign policy, and national security issues. Is it like as big as lawmakers are saying? Maybe, maybe not. I generally don't know. I want to see more intel.
0: Do you think sanctions are overly relied on as a tool of foreign policy?
1: Yeah, no question. And their track record sucks. You are hard pressed to find a lot of, I mean, there are examples of sanctions sort of working precisely as we wanted them to, but there are a lot of examples of them not. And they are sort of a substitute for any other action. Like, okay, well, we don't want to bomb something. We don't want to do nothing. And we know that going and just like getting a U.N. resolution isn't going to work or, you know, wagging our finger isn't going to be enough. So let's sanction. That'll do something. So, yeah, I think they're they're. I I think that they are a bandaid over a bunch of other things that we could be doing. And like they were, let's not forget, they were like a tool of war before when you sanctioned a country or like that was a really aggressive thing to do. Now we, you know, pass them out like Halloween candy. So I do feel that they are overused. Yeah. Will the Iran deal come back? Doesn't look good. Definitely doesn't look good. (laughs) Whether you're a fan or not, like it's just, it doesn't look like it's, there's a, you know, I think the Biden administration had a very good reason to to think about getting back in, but like being cautious about getting back in, you know, would Iran lower its stockpiles, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't look like Iran wants to play ball. They kind of feel like the U.S. wants the deal so badly that they'll just give it away. That could still happen. But at this point, it feels more dead than alive and like by a lot. I think the smart money is on it not coming back.
0: Do you think we'll see major changes in the war in Ukraine in the next year? Or do you think it's just gonna continue to be this kind of pitched stalemate?
1: Through the winter, for sure, more pitched stalemate. After that, and who knows when the when the you know snow thaws. It really depends on, you know, it depends on a lot of things. Like, will Russia actually not only just mobilize more, but actually train troops enough? Are they gonna get more weapons from elsewhere? How much can European unity last, yeah. We even this latest tranche of uh, 1.1 billion in security assistance, including the 18 HIMARS. Like those HIMARS aren't arriving at the Ukrainian battlefield for years. So, I mean, I was just in Finland and Latvia, and they are really. I mean, they obviously want to keep helping Ukraine. They want to push back on Russia, but they're really worried about the the supply chain issues and the defense industry issues on sending weapons because it's kind of all plugged up and and slow. We're also lost a ton of skilled labor during the pandemic, and so. It's hard to sort of, how much more can we give? What are we willing to give? Do the Russians change to the Ukrainians? Like, there's a whole bunch of factors. But I think the smart money, at least through the winter, is you'll see mostly, like, some tactical back and forths.
0: So you talked about being part of the 9-11 generation, right? This is next in foreign policy. We're all kind of in the same cohort. Is the war on terror over?
1: Depends how you define it. (laughs) I know I'm giving really not fun answers look, the fight against terrorism is not, it never will be. Is there sort of like a coordinated whole of government? Like, this is the animating feature of US foreign policy? No, I would argue, in which case, then I think in terms of like, it is the thing that we are doing most above all. No, I think that in that that case, then it is over. But we will always be looking for terrorists to drone. In that sense, it is not over.
0: Who's your favorite national security journalist to read?
1: There's so many good ones. Um, God, I don't have a favorite. So give us a couple. I will. Uh, Robbie Gramer, uh, the whole foreign policy team, Amy McKinnon, Jack Detch, Robbie Gramer, they're all excellent. Thomas Gibbons-Neff, the New York Times, I think is really good. I read pretty much anything he writes. Karen DeYoung at The Post. Shane Harris at The Post. John Hudson at The Post. Julian Borger at uh, The Guardian. Demi Sevastopolou at the Financial Times on China stuff. All, every single one of my colleagues at Politico, not to, you know, not to forget them. Paul McLeary, Lara Seligman, Andrew Desiderio, Connor O'Brien, Maggie Miller. I'm going to forget somebody. It's going it's to bother me. You
2: sound like you're at the Oscars. Like, I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, that I should. I, That's a good list.
1: Yeah, it's no, I mean, there's like I'm I'm actually generally like I know this will sound so, uh, sappy. Oh, God, Natasha Bertrand, Katie Bo Lillis, um, Tara Copp. Anyway, uh, so many people this was not sad, but like, it is a genuinely great cohort of reporters. Like the national security folks, I like, they like each other. We actually support each other. I remember when I went into the, the, like the Pentagon and there was just like, as I, when I started Vox, I was basically the Pentagon reporter first. And there was like a camaraderie. People were helping each other all the time. And I've, I've sort of liked being that. And the fact that I get to sort of like report alongside these folks is really kind of an honor. So I, I appreciate that they still have me around and let me write. But I've definitely forgotten, folks. I promise you, if I haven't mentioned your name, like, I'm thinking about you right now. You're all great.
0: How far will the U.S. men's national team make it at the World Cup?
1: Oh, man, all right. Now, I hope this is, I hope this is the rest of the podcast. So it's good that we call the U.S. men's national team. The women's team, we just need to call the U.S. national team. Like, we used to do it the opposite way. The ones that win don't need the modifier. So that's that's the one, how I feel. Okay, so there we go. The latest games against uh, Japan and Saudi Arabia were atrocious. They sucked. The Saudi game was awful. They were so, so bad. Like, which is upsetting because, and like, this is so normal for US, the the US men's national team. Like, this is the best generation of players they've arguably ever had. And they're young and they're good. It's like Belgium, like 10 years ago. So they should, even though their group is kind of hard, you would argue that they should at least get out of the group stage and probably win. A round of 16, and then after the quarterfinals and beyond, like whatever happens, happens. They should talent-wise, arguably be enough to get there. They just haven't gelled, and there are some injuries. So, I mean, their group is what it's Wales, it's England and Iran. They should beat Iran, should being the operative word. England, I think you can, it's fine if that's a loss. Like you'd expect that. Wales is the game that, like, if all sort of goes to corner, like that should be the game. That's the tilting game. You can beat Wales. They're a decent team. I mean, Gareth Bale somehow always seems to come alive when he plays for that team. But like, you do have the talent to put to beat Wales 2-1 or something like that. So I but I think I'm going to bet on them not making it through. I bet it's going to be England-Wales that make it through. Although I would love to see them because they do have the talent to get to the quarterfinals at least. But I, it's just not looking good.
0: So final question. What's your cocktail of choice and where do you like to drink it?
1: Uh, it's a great question. I should start asking that of people. I said in the first edition of Drinks with Nat Daily, uh, I'm a Moscow Mule guy. I get, Although I think now we have to call them Kyiv Mules. I think this is a freedom fry situation. Whatever we're gonna call vodka and ginger beer and lime juice, like that's in a copper cup, that's that's the drink. Beer also is delicious. Any kind of beer, I'll drink it. Other than Porter's IPAs, the IPA love astounds me. I do not get it. It's bitter and gross, stop drinking it. But anyway, uh, I don't, Front Porch or just any restaurant, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of like a, as long as I have a drink, I'm fine. Uh, I don't really care where I am.
0: So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something that's in the news, either politically or culturally. I'll kick us off this week. I wanted to heartily recommend The Bear on Hulu. It's a show about a chef who inherited his family's restaurant after the suicide of his brother. It covers a lot of things from day-to-day restaurant life to addiction in just eight episodes. Other than just to watch the show, my recommendation is to watch the final two episodes back-to-back. I think they just fit together really well. I think the frenetic pace of one of the episodes and the killer monologue in the other episode are just like perfectly gelled and a great way to spend a couple hours. But be warned, if you worked in a restaurant, you will have flashbacks. Zoe, what are you following this
2: week? I want to second your recommendation of The Bear. Great show. And as a foodie, I like loved every second of it. What am I following? On a more sober note, As uh, Iranian protests have picked up in recent weeks, there's been some interesting data that shows uh, the ways in which Iranian citizens are now heavily relying on tools designed to circumvent Internet shutdowns. The Iranian government, I mean, this is not new, but especially in recent weeks, has been systematically blocking access to the Internet writ large, as well as blocking specific messaging platforms you know, things like WhatsApp, et cetera, as well as social media sites and so forth. And so the demand in Iran now for VPNs is up something like 3000%, which I think just shows level of suppression and also desire for folks on the ground to get information out into the world.
0: Alex, bring us home.
1: What are you following this week? Well, I will third the bear. As someone who worked in a restaurant for a long time, definitely had like a lot of anxiety uh, watching it. And I think with John Bernthal in moments is great. And the single shot scene was excellent. a uh, whole episode was excellent. Do check out the Iranian protest. Follow up on that. It's an important news issue. I'm a stick with soccer. I'll stick with the World Cup, but uh, I'll try to make it foreign policy related. It's in Qatar this year, uh, which isn't great because it is. They've used a lot of forced labor to make the stadiums looks like people have died and a lot of human rights violations to create the tournament. And it is also just the latest and greatest example of sports washing in which autocratic regimes do glitzy things to make you like them. Think China, 2008 Olympics and that opening ceremony that we still think about with the drums. Saudi Arabia, uh, their sovereign wealth fund buying Newcastle, a team in the Premier League, where the chairman of that sovereign wealth fund just so happens to be Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. There is a trend even growing and growing and growing and more... Oh, out in the open of sports washing that we really need to be wary of. I know all the bad stuff that happened um, leading up to this World Cup. I'm still going to watch it. For, like, it's just, it's a thing. That's the power of the World Cup and of the game. It's just like, you know all the bad stuff and you're still going to watch it. But that said, do keep in mind that there are some bad forces trying to trick you and like pull the wool over your eyes with these glitzy events. So just be mindful of that as you watch them. But overall, I mean, try to enjoy the tournament as much as you can. Which is which will be starting in November, and I would bet at this point I'll put a marker down publicly. I think Argentina takes it, and Messi gets his first World Cup. Bold prediction.
0: I like what Denmark did with their kits to protest uh, yeah. the the World Cup. I mean, obviously you can't not go, but I, I do think it's important to to remember the human rights violations and all the other stuff that Qatar does. It's not great. But with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z. Weinberg, and follow Alex at Alex B. Ward or at his newsletter, Daily from Politico. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the NASA DART program. Is the existential dread of climate change getting you down? Do you feel like inflation and housing prices mean you can't get ahead? Leave all your worries behind for science by being the next thing we launch into space. And while you're hurtling through the cosmos, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.